Welcome to Healthcare Experience Matters. This podcast is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation and is dedicated to transforming the healthcare experience so that every person can receive and deliver the best care. We invite you to learn more by visiting healthcareexperience.org. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Healthcare Experience Matters. We have a very special guest today. I'm going to let her introduce herself in a minute here. But today's discussion is going to center around shifting perspective, uncovering patient, employee, and physician experience blind spots. Our guest today is Brooke Billingsley. And I'm going to have her introduce herself now and tell us a little bit about her professional background before we jump into today's discussion. Hey, Casey. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, so I've spent the last 25 years in the healthcare space, mainly um, started out doing patient perception and understanding how they were perceiving their care. And that was more frontline experiences. And then it got into more deeper experiences with 24-hour inpatient stays and their experience in the emergency department. And then from that, just developed into full-fledged ethnography studies and really sitting bedside to understand what they're experiencing. And so I've been able to put all that research together in some helpful uh, tools that have been employed across the country for nurse leaders and for um, new nurses. And so it's been really exciting to kind of see that research come to fruition and helping others and helping them better understand what patients see and what they experience. And Brooke serves as Vice President of Service Excellence here at the Healthcare Experience Foundation. And as you'll hear on today's podcast, Brooke has extraordinary insight into how healthcare organizations can ensure that every patient has an exceptional experience. So Brooke, as we jump into this chat, I guess I just want to know, why are you so personally so passionate about the patient experience? Um, you know, it's interesting because I, I didn't I didn't naturally get into this space. My late husband started this business because he came from a healthcare background. And um, as I delved deeper into it, it became apparent that there were uh, a lot of gaps between um, what patients wanted and were experiencing versus what we were delivering in healthcare. And so I saw that as a personal challenge. And I also saw the impact of great care and compassionate care and what a difference it made in every human interaction. And so I think that just strengthened my my passion for it and wanting to improve it. And now I get to be a part of a great team with Healthcare Experience Foundation where we're actually going on site and coaching for solutions and really helping people um, go deeper into who they are. Um, So that's that's really what stems my my passion and keeps me going actually and and all that I continue to learn and and experience. In your mind, what does a successful patient clinician partnership, what does that look like maybe from a patient's viewpoint in an ideal setting? So let me use me as an example. So here I am in this business, been doing this for 25 years and I go in for my annual uh, checkup with my uh, internal medicine physician and in the course of conversation, I she comes in, she shakes my hand, she says hello, then she goes to sit at a desk with her computer and she, I've got a side view of her now, I don't have eye contact. And she asks a couple of questions about my overall health and I, and I explain to her that my life has been quite 
turbulent over the last few years in that I lost my, my, my late husband of 36 years to cancer, that I had moved out of my house of 21 years into, and downsized, um, that I had joined a new group of consultants, um, just was expressing to her all the things that had happened in my life to which I got no connection. I got no uh, affirmation. I got no return conversation from her, um, just kind of a nod and then business as usual. And then she went about um, prescribing all of the tests that were due um, per my age group. And so there was just a real disconnect. And so I think for me, it was like, okay, where's that human interaction that I'm missing? And so when I filled out the survey a little bit later, it said, would you recommend this physician? And I thought only, I would only recommend this physician if I, if you needed to go to someone and have tests ordered up and you wanted someone to keep accurate records of your healthcare, but I wouldn't go to her if you were looking for a connection or a personal relationship with your provider, because you're probably not going to get it. Brooke, I do want to offer my condolences on your loss. And I really appreciate you discussing it so openly and, and it really helps, I think, our discussion. So before I move on, I just want to acknowledge that and, and offer my condolences. Thank you. I think I've learned a lot from reading Brene Brown about vulnerability, um, having the courage to show up and be seen when you have no control over the outcome. And so I've always just been very open and sharing my own experiences because I think that translates to the healthcare uh, clinicians and employees that I work with in helping them see how vulnerable and emotional their patients are. And so when they hear it firsthand from me, it kind of helps them relate back to their own stories of what they need and what they want. And so that you bring them back into that connection again. It's very well said. Now I want to shift the discussion a little bit to ethnography and ethnography case studies. First of all, can you just tell us about healthcare ethnography? You know, what is that? Let's just start there. What is healthcare ethnography and how is it relevant to our overall discussion today? So it's a fancy anthropological name, ethnography, and it really just means direct observation. It can be of people or of things. Maybe everyone remembers Jane Goodall and she used to observe in the wild apes and, and did all of her research. And so ethnography is just the ability to sit and um, observe in detail all of the things that are, are, are happening in the surroundings around a patient. Um, and so my work has been sitting bedside and doing it in an inpatient unit um, and just observing their care, having casual conversations with them, but then watching all of the other things that are going on with interactions with staff and the environment and process issues, and then just kind of pulling it all together. Are there any ethnography case studies you'd like to discuss with us? Um, perhaps you can tell us more about the case study you discussed in a recent webinar uh, that was entitled Shifting Perspective, Uncovering Patient, Employee, and Physician Experience Blind Spots. So again, if there's any case studies that'll help better illustrate this discussion, go ahead and let us know about it. Sure. So so after doing a thousand hours and sitting bedside, you you observe a lot of different scenarios and a different and different storylines of what patients are going through and how staff is interacting with that patient and how management is supporting that clinician uh, in delivering that care or how ancillary staff is interacting with patients. And I'll, I'll tell you two. One is a short one, and that is. I remember a woman being mentioned by several patients 
in a unit. And they kept telling me that um, Maria from environmental services was exceptional because I would ask at the end of my interactions with the patient, I'd say, is there anyone that stands out that's delivered exceptional care that made a difference while your stay was here? And they said, yeah, the, the woman who comes in to clean my room, her name's Maria. She really made a difference. I thought, wow, this is really unusual because I don't typically don't hear about non-clinical people being um, recommended for standing out, right? I hear more about the nurse assistant or the nurse or the doctor. And so after about four of these interactions, I went to find Maria and I, I went into the hallway and I said, I said, are you Maria? And she said, yes. And I said, well, I've just heard so much about you from patients. And I've just been so impressed. I said, what is it about what you're doing and interactions that you're having with these patients that's having such a positive impact? And she said, this isn't a job for me. She said, this is a mission for me. And she said, I know that I'm just cleaning rooms, but I'm doing more than that. She said, I walk into a room and I greet them with a smile. I look them in the eye. In some of my patients, I even give them a hug and I tell them that I care about them and that I'm keeping their room clean to keep them safe. And she said, I just try to make their day a little brighter. I thought, what an awesome story about somebody who turned what might be considered, you know, a lower end job in healthcare into something that was so prominent and so important in the impact she was having. Um, so that that's a simple story that I've gotten from ethnography. And then probably the, the one theme that started to come out in all of the ethnography study, and that's what I shared uh, earlier in a seminar when we were doing um, Compassion Tribe during um, our season of COVID last year, was that there were three things that really mattered most to patients. And there's research to support it. And that was that patients want you to use their name. And that names are super important to people because what we typically do when we walk into a room is we introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Brooke. I'm your nurse. I'm going to be taking care of you. And then we start going into the business of taking care of them and all the things that are going to happen that day. And I realized um, that in my encounters with all these patients that I wasn't hearing their name ever used. I was hearing sometimes... Um, a form of a name, honey or sweetie or dear, um, but not their names. And so we realized that the power of using their name in every encounter was, was really impactful because it personalized it and made them a human being instead of a patient, right? And so then we said, the second most important thing that we learned was if you could have a back pocket question, and that sounds so simplistic. And then people would say, well, what does that mean? And can you provide me with back pocket questions? And that is just a conversation starter, some inquiry, uh, some inquisitive inquiry about what, if you weren't here today, what would you be doing? Do you have a favorite pet? Um, tell me about your family. Um, do you have grandchildren? And then have, you know, and so it's personalizing them and who they are and their uniqueness of who they are so that it isn't all about their condition. And then the third thing was passing that information along to a colleague. So if you're doing a bedside shift report or you've got uh, another um, staff coming in to interact with the patient, you're saying, hey, this is this is Brooke and she's here today. And, and, and I just want you to know something about her. She's got to show you a picture of her, her little nine pound Shih Tzu who her name's Lily. She is really cute. And so you're just starting that warmth of passing that conversation to the next person. And so it all becomes um, like a village taking care of you versus 
cold interactions with each person. So those three things came out of doing all of that research of what was important to patients in making connections. That is great. That Those are really important stories and takeaways, I think, and really simple to understand language. So I appreciate that. I want to ask about humor. Small talk as well, we kind of just touched on. Does this help decrease stress for patients? Do you want to touch on that? Sure. So I got to do a really unique study for the Cleveland Clinic, and it was an emotion study where over the course of four months, I interviewed 140 patients at different levels of their journey in healthcare. Some of them were doing follow-up appointments for um, find out if their cancer had come back. Some of them were in the hospital. I was talking to them while they were in their beds. Some of them were going um, just for regular follow-up exams, but they were all different um, specialties. And the overriding theme was what impacts their emotion and what level of emotion do they have? And so we asked them to tell us on a level of one to 10. We asked them also to provide us their um, blood pressure um, reading when they went in for their appointments so that we could sit, we could understand physically if it was affecting them. Um, typically men would always say that they're, um, as we used a liquid scale of one to five, five being the highest distress, they would typically say one, one and a half. And we'd say, well, your blood pressure's um, very high. Do you have high blood pressure at, uh, normally? And they'll say, no, not really. And I said, was that surprising that it was high? Yeah. And I said, do you think that might've been a result of stress? Yeah. Um, and so, so they would be more honest than with acknowledging that they were experiencing stress. And so when we did all the research, we came up with the top 10, the three prominent, well, actually the two prominent ones were, will my physician and clinician be nice to me? And will they engage in small talk with me or, or humor using humor? And if those two things, they were kind, used humor and enacted account and, and just a small talk kind of conversation, it completely put the patient at ease because then it gave them the reassurance they were in good hands. And I know that sounds so simplistic, but that was four months, many, many hours of interviewing patients, lots of mining for key drivers that were keeping them stressed or, or eliminating stress. And it really came down to some very basic, very basic things that we can do every day. Brooke, and I reviewed your webinar, your Shifting Perspective webinar that I mentioned earlier, and you discuss self-deception. So can you just tell us, first of all, what is self-deception and why is it critical to break the barriers of self-deception for an improved patient experience? Well, so often people will say, first of all, people talk about patient experience as if it's a set of rules or a set of words or a set of actions. And it's really not, it's uniquely you showing up in, in the situation. And it's really just um, the way that you interact and you're doing your best to be better. Right. And so self-deception is I'm not part of, I'm not part of this. Um, I'm doing everything right. Um, my patients don't have a problem with me. It's everyone else that needs help. It's kind of that siloed effect of this is for them, not for me. Right. So self-deception is, at first having that social awareness to notice that, yeah, you do play a part and maybe there's ways that you can improve your interactions. Maybe there's ways that you can strengthen those connections with other human beings that you're interacting with. And so not always thinking that it's somebody else's initiative to learn or, 
or a skill set to improve that it might be you that personally that you could improve and you could be more aware of how you come across and how you interact. We talked a little bit about it earlier, but did you have any other thoughts on ways that healthcare workers can better see their patient experience through the patient eyes or any other information you want to give about how we can be better listeners? I just, I think one of the keys in, in what I've tried to convey over the years is that healthcare is a very emotional business and you need to be comfortable with emotion because nobody says when they wake up in the morning, gosh, I hope I'm going to go to the emergency room today, or gosh, I hope I'm going to have emergency surgery. It's just an emotional, uh, we're in an emotional world when we go into the healthcare setting. And so keeping that in mind that patients are emotional and vulnerable, um, that you want to be a part of that solution. So I would just remind people that, that you want to start with that heart connection first. And as much as you can connect and interact. I mean, I've had nurses that when they first come on shift, they will pull up a chair, they will sit next to the patient so they can be eye level, they'll connect and say, I'm so and so. And what do you prefer to be called? Oh, you'd like to be called Brooke? Great. Well, Brooke, I'm going to take the best care I can of you today. And I'm going to talk to you about what we're going to do. I'm going to make sure that your communication board is filled out. So you always are in the know. Here's the best way to get a hold of me. And they're just really strengthening that relationship and connection. The same that they would want if that was their mother or their sister or their father, right? And so I'm just always trying to reinforce that if you can personalize it with your connection and they feel that patient feels taken care of, you have just made that initial connection. And that initial connection is so powerful for the overall experience. Brooke Billingsley has been our guest today on Healthcare Experience Matters. She's the Vice President of Service Excellence here at the Healthcare Experience Foundation. Brooke, if there's anything else, any final parting words you want to leave for our audience before we wrap it up, please go ahead and let me know now. Sure. Thanks, Casey. I would just say we can all do better, right? Every day with each other, we can do better. We can pause to hold the door open. We can look and smile. Even if we're masked up, we can smile with our eyes. We can allow someone to go in front of us in line, but each small gesture adds up. And that that human connection is so important in our everyday life. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Healthcare Experience Matters. Healthcare Experience Matters is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation. To learn more, please visit healthcareexperience.org. That's healthcareexperience.org.